0: All right, so um, if you turn to Luke ten with me, in your Bibles, it's on page eleven hundred five. If you're using the Bible in your in your chairs, there. Uh, that's where we're going to start today. We've been going through a series in Haggai, um, and we're going to take a break from it this week. Return to it next week. Uh, if you are here on Vision Sunday, you know that we have some pretty biblical and exciting initiatives here at UPC. And we've had to, had the opportunity to preach through most of them, uh, this year, uh, so far. So we preached over the discipleship and college initiative in the spring. Then we did a, um, a mission Sunday over our initiative to the unreached people group. And so if you remember the, the, um, the cross-shaped life, one of the things we're called to is gospel demonstration. And we have a mercy initiative that matches up with that. And I'm going to preach about that today. So that's, that's what we're doing today in this very familiar story. In Luke 10. So if you read with me the story of the Good Samaritan. So we'll start in um, in verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him, talking about Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. and he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave him, gave them to to the innkeeper, saying, "Take care of him, and whatever you, more you spend, I will repay you when I come back." Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, "The one who showed him mercy." And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. It's the reading of God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together once more. Gracious God, our heavenly father, we thank you that this is not not an ordinary lecture or talk, but your word is powerful. It is compared to a sword that can cut to the heart and... Hopefully many of us come knowing that we need that this morning. That we need, as Ken said, we, we, are, we are tempted to adore something or anything other than you. And we need you to recapture our heart's attention and our affection. And especially as um, the gospel is so beautiful and so glorious and what you've done for us in Christ, the true good Samaritan. So we pray you would do that this morning and leave us with a heart that desires to show mercy towards our neighbors. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the greatest things we can do is to help someone know that they are loved and capable of loving. That is a quote by someone famous. Does anybody know who that was? Mr. Rogers. Um... I know that that causes some of us to, um, you know, even his name causes some of us to kind of sigh with nostalgia and probably others to say, um, who? <laughs> but, um, but there's a new documentary that came out about his life this year. I don't know if some of you might have seen it. Uh, I haven't seen it yet. It's titled, Won't You Be My Neighbor? And I'm quite fascinated by how the media has responded to it. In an age where uh, Rotten Tomatoes gives the most wholesome movies a low-scoring rotten green splat, <laughs> uh, they gave a 99% shiny tomato to this documentary about a man who gave his life to teach people how to love their neighbor, especially children. The Washington Post said, uh, said this about it. In contrast to the sharp shocks and snarky anti- anti-heroes that animate most of today's media landscape, the experience almost feels surreal without ever being boring. I'm talking about seeing the movie, or the documentary. In fact, the quite valorization of kindness and gentleness feels wildly count, count, counter-cultural. Why be like this? The film seem, seems to ask. It's a remarkable, difficult question to answer. Ultimately, the most singular feature of won't you be my neighbor is that it takes for granted the assumption that being good, humane, compassionate, and kind is the goal. Sarcasm and shock aren't valued. Love is. And then they end with this. It's surprisingly disorienting. disorienting. (laughs) Love, they say, this kind of love is surprisingly disorienting in today's culture. Mr. Rogers was making a case for public television in an interview one time in the late 90s and he said his goal was to to make goodness attractive. It shows that such goodness really is attractive and even disorienting for some who are used to reading the news on social media or TV and seeing anything but heartfelt, sacrificial love and kindness for their neighbor. In our passage today... A Jewish man comes to Jesus with a question. And this man, Luke knows, is self-righteous. He feels superior to all his neighbors around him, especially to an unholy, and unclean Samaritan, as they thought of that people group. And he leaves Jesus feeling surprisingly disoriented, having to admit that this Samaritan is the example of how to love one's neighbor. That he actually was the one who shows mercy. One commentator said of this passage, Even a fictional description of a real act of mercy is by its nature attractive and compelling. Even an unwilling bigot must bow begrudgingly in honor. Talking about the lawyer. So I want to preach Today, a little bit about what our session feels God has called us to in terms of mercy and how to love our neighbors around us. But as we listen to God speak through this passage, I want to invite you to dream with me for a moment as a church, as a family. What would it look like if God were to use UPC to be so counterculturally merciful and may make our our neighbors feel so loved to make goodness seem so attractive and compelling that the schools and businesses and even a skeptical media around us would feel surprisingly disoriented in terms of what they thought of Christianity and, and more importantly, what they think of Christ. What would it look like if our neighbors around us saw the mercy and love of God through us in such a way that they came themselves to rest and trust His mercy? And I think that's possible by God's grace. And that's what we're aiming for. So I want to look at two things. The ne- what's necessary? The necessary elements of mercy. And also the necessary motivation for mercy. So let's look first at the necessary elements of mercy. I just want to point out two. There are more here in this passage. But let me point out two. Uh, in regards to this mercy initiative we have, so number one, a necessary element of mercy is a heart for hurting people, a heart for hurting people. Verse 25 in the text says a lawyer, an expert, an expert in Old Testament law, stood up and asked Jesus a question of what he should do to et- what one has to do to have eternal life. Now Luke gives us an insight into his heart, saying that. This guy wasn't really interested in an answer. He was actually just testing Jesus, right? See, he wanted to catch Jesus either in an error, maybe that's what was going on in his heart, or maybe he was just looking for an opportunity to show off his, his great knowledge, superior knowledge of Old Testament. Of the Old Testament. So Jesus asks him uh, what he thinks, since, of course, he's the expert and all, right? Uh, the guy's like, sweet. My time to shine. <laughs> he quotes Deuteronomy 6, Leviticus 19. He says, love God, love your neighbor. He's like, boom, nailed it. You know, like, mic drop. <laughs> That's what he's thinking in his heart. And Jesus responds, hey, great. Do this perfectly and, and live. The guy um, probably is a little bit disoriented and says, well, <clears throat> he fo- has a follow-up question. Well, Well, who is my neighbor? And Luke, again, again gives some insight into this man's heart. Verse 29 here in the text says this, this guy, he asked it just because he's wanting to justify himself. Now, here's what's going on. See, his heart problem was exposed by a really bad question. Here's the bad question. What is my duty to get in? What is the minimum that I have to do to be justified or be right? right uh, how narrowly can i define my neighbor that i have to love in order to get by that's what he, he's really asking it's simply a bad question it's very similar to ones you've probably heard before or even asked maybe yourself uh, how much do i have to give to god what's the minimum <laughs> i need a percentage how far can i go with my girlfriend or boyfriend before marriage where's the line what can I get away with and still be okay? There are questions asked that simply reveal a heart that doesn't grasp eternal life, or what fullness of life is in the kingdom of God and our relationship that we're meant to have with Him. Uh, let me give you an example. Imagine you, uh, you yourselves are you know back in or premarital counseling, or will be in premarital counseling, uh, and you're, let's just say you're the girl and you're with your future husband. Her wife and the counselor goes through uh, his counseling and then asks, are there any questions? And the um, the husband-to-be then asks, hey, that sounds really great. Uh, that was really good. Love that. All sounds nice. I just have one question. Hey, what's the minimum amount of time they have to spend with her in order to be a good husband? Uh, and, and also, what's the minimum when we do have kids? What's the minimum I actually have to play with the kids to be a, be a, be a good dad? The counselor might say, "You know, I'm, I'm not sure your your heart totally gets what's going on here." He might also say, "I'm not sure you're even going to make it back home today." <laughs> uh, kids, I don't know we have much kids in here. I mean, kids is. But I mean, can you imagine going to, a, you know, a, a candy shop with a friend and turn and your friends uh, turn and ask you, uh, "Hey, remind me what the minimum number of pieces of candy that we have to have." Uh, that we, may, we have to get. You might say, you know, hey, have you ever tasted candy before? If so, it's a bad question. Such questions reveal a heart that it just doesn't feel what it's supposed to feel. It reveals eyes that just don't see what they're supposed to see, what true life, eternal life really is. And the seemingly so smart lawyer had such not smart eyes and, and heart. And so Jesus tells him a story to get to his heart, to answer his question and ours, who is my neighbor and who am I called to love? I'm not going to go too deep in the story because most of us are pretty familiar with it. And, but in it though, Jesus has two professional clergy walk by or pass by a man that's beat up and half dead on the side of the road. And for each one, it says, when when they saw him, they, it's each one, it says, they pass by on the other side. It, it reads almost as if you, a man is coming home from work on the 408. He's talking to someone on his phone. He sees, happens to glance over, he sees a woman and her children with a smoking van on the side of the road. And they just simply turn, puts on his blinker and passes right by without a thought. Now, the lawyer would have, um, the lawyer would have related with these men who passed by. He could probably understand. It's like, well, that makes sense. Uh, I, I they had a fear of being coming unclean. If you help this man, they could be unclean and not help with the temple, in the temple anymore. Or maybe a fear that the robbers were still around and that he might be injured or something bad might happen to him. Uh, he's probably relating with, with those guys. But then comes the Samaritan. Verse 33 says, when the Samaritan saw the man, it says he felt something. Well, this is different from the other two men. It says he, he had compassion, verse 33. The word compassion at the time was used for, uh, to describe the inward parts of our bodies, like the liver and lungs and heart, and therefore it was used figuratively for the seat of our emotion, our, the heart of our affection, uh, a deep feeling of sympathy Or someone or something. And even though this man was considered an enemy, the Jew who's half dead, this Samaritan feels compassion and affection in his heart. You know, Martin Luther King Jr., um, the the day before he was killed, gave his last speech uh, in Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, where I'm from, actually. The last paragraph in his speech is, uh, is quoted a lot. You've, you might have heard it about the mountaintop. But the beginning of that speech is not quoted very much. It was an extemporaneous sermon drawing from this passage, the Good Samaritan. In it, uh, King explains that the men who passed by had such a heart uh, when they saw this man. Uh, when, they, when they saw this man, they asked this question, Martin Luther King says. If I stop to help... What's going to happen to me? But King continues, he says, The heart of the Samaritan, he asked a different question. In his heart, he said, If I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? Who is our neighbor? Do you know that studies show that about 43% of families in Orange County are considered working poor? Uh, which means that they're barely making enough money to get by or pay the bills or living paycheck to paycheck. One-fifth of the 35,000 people living in this zip code around UPC are living below the poverty line. One-fifth. Riverdale Elementary, just right about 100 yards down the road, is a Title I school because about 87% of them, those families receive governmental support. 40 to 65 children at that school are considered homeless at any given time because they don't have any kind of permanent housing. Of course, with those hardships come all kinds of other difficulties in life. These are our neighbors. And I think it's right for us to slow down and to see them, not pass them by, to feel something, love and affection. I think it's right for us to have such a heart that asks, What will happen to them if we do not help? One thing that kept this Jewish lawyer from doing this was his inability to see them and imagine himself in that position. So Jesus forces him to see himself as the half-dead, hurting man and asks, What would happen to me if this neighbor doesn't stop? If this man, if this Samaritan, if my enemy doesn't stop? What would happen to me? Who would I want this Samaritan to consider his neighbor as his neighbor? Well, the answer is anyone who's hurting around us. Uh, Me. I think it's good for us to ponder that only by God's grace that we were born in this country with certain privileges. And we're not having to travel 10 miles to look for fresh water today. It's only by God's grace you're born into a family without certain patterns of addiction or generational poverty, if that's your case. It's only by God's grace that you got the education you did and have the family support that if disaster struck, you wouldn't be on the streets yourselves. I love to talk about that with my, with the deacons that, you know, I just love when we do diaconal training or something, you know, it's just almost nobody in this room will ever be homeless almost nobody and it's not because you may not lose your job or all your savings it's because you you were born by god's grace into with family support and friendships that they would never let that happen to you and that is by god's grace in your life so it's good to imagine ourselves then working a few low-paying jobs while raising two or three children and living in the motel up the road as many are doing. What would happen to me and my children if the church, if UPC doesn't help? Who would I want UPC to consider as their neighbor? The answer would be me. To do this takes a changed heart. It's the first element, necessary element of of mercy, a heart for hurting people. Secondly, second necessary element is... A relationship. A relationships with hurting people. I don't know if you do this. Um, but I tend to always imagine myself as the hero of a story. You ever do that? Uh, this was especially true when I was young. Uh, I would create these scenarios where, uh, you know, something bad really happens and I show up to save the day. You ever done that? I know you men have. Uh, Don't deny it. It looks something like this. A a woman's walking down the street. Two men push her down, grab her purse. I happen to be standing right next to her. And then then begins this fight sequence. Right? Uh, Dodging punches, amazing roundhouse kicks that even Bruce Lee would be impressed with. And, uh, you know, I, they're all laying on the floor, on the ground. I grab, I, I get her purse back, pick her up, walk her back to her house safely. It ends with me drinking tea and refusing to even consider any kind of payment for my bravery. Um, you ever daydream like that? You're probably thinking like nothing that detailed. <laughs> um, uh, Insight into my head. Uh, but, you know, <clears throat> several years ago I was living in Brazil And something like this actually happened to me. A little bit different ending. Um, I was walking to the grocery store when I heard a glass break, and these two young men were breaking into a car about 30 feet from me. And I was the only one around, so I thought. And one was looking at me, and I was looking at him, and they were wondering what I'm going to do. And I'm like, I don't know what to do either. That's about when this, this elderly woman grabs my arm next to me. And she says... They are they're stealing my car, do something. Um pictures of Bruce Lee and T faded away. <laughs> my heart instinct uh quickly came out. Um so I I, I um I grabbed my cell phone and said hey, quick, call someone uh, even though I, I don't know that I really should have taken that risk uh for her car, they actually just stole her radio. Um, But it's still a little embarrassing. And to be honest, it's still the impulse of my heart when it comes to helping those who are hurting around me, if I were honest. I would sure love to imagine myself doing what the Samaritan man did, as if I were were in the same situation. But if I'm honest, considering the potential risks and dangers of getting involved, uh, I could easily see myself reaching into my pocket and grabbing some cash or at most calling someone to... Quickly to come assist. I want you to imagine yourself walking along with the Samaritan man. Just take a moment. Imagine yourself walking along this Jericho road. This very dangerous road, and getting to observe what goes on here. Picture it in your mind as I go through it. Verse 34 says that he went over to him. Picture him searching through his bag to find some oil and wine and then pouring it over the man and beginning to bind him up gently with a cloth. He then picks him up. He, he puts him on his own donkey and starts to walk beside him on the way to a hotel where he can be safe and recover. And we're not sure what business he had to do, but he... he Probably canceled whatever he was doing in order to, it seems like, stay the night with him in the inn and take care of him all night. The next day he had to go, obviously, and um, and so he leaves some money with the man so that he could, quote, take care of him. And the word take care of here means to care for or provide for one with diligent concern. This man had a heart for this enemy of his. It was the opposite. It was the direct opposite of looking for the minimum. It was an overflow of lavish mercy. And here's what we can glean. Mercy is meant to be personal. Helping hurting people involves relationships with hurting people. This is a great reminder for us in a time where Para-church mercy ministries abound that are helping the poor, and it is just simply easier to give money to them as our primary way of helping hurting people. It's just easier to help people without a relationship. Now, please don't hear me minimize uh, that giving financially is a huge way to be a blessing to hurting people. Uh, giving money to equip those who are in the trenches working with the homeless or other hurting people is a great way to play a significant part in our calling to the poor. But what I am saying is that giving does not relinquish us from the necessity of having relationships with the poor and hurting people. If you turn to Mark 7 with me, I want to show you um, something. Mark seven. Couple pages back, I want to see. I want to. I want you to see a a quick story of how, how Jesus saw helping, hurting people as being so relate, so relational, so personal. Mark seven, starting in verse thirty-one. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through. Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of Decapolis, talking about Jesus. And listen, they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. Notice first that some people actually cared enough for this deaf man to actually bring him to Jesus. This is probably because they had some kind of relationship with him. They knew Jesus was coming, they had a relationship with this man, and they brought him He brought him to Jesus. They knew, people knew that Jesus could just say a word or lay a hand on him. And that's what they, all they asked him to do. Just lay a hand. You got this, Jesus. On this deaf man, he would be healed. But Jesus demonstrates here the importance of how healing takes place. Notice it. He takes him aside from the crowd. See that in verse 33? Privately, This is not a moment, in other words, to show his glory as he does with Lazarus. To the crowds, this is a moment to see and connect with a hurting man that has been deaf and therefore excluded from society for a very long time. This man has been hurting much more than physically for a very long time. The man needed more than hearing. He needed to know how important he was to the Son of God. And Jesus then, it says, he said, he, so he's pulled him aside. He says he put his fingers into his ears. And then he spits and he, and he actually touches this man's tongue. Imagine Jesus so up close and intimate in this guy's face. And he's just right here. He had his fingers in his ears. He spits and actually touches his tongue. And see, he was giving healing in a way that this man could feel. A man, it was Personal. It was a moment of real relationship and connection. And can't you feel how this man probably, he could feel that he was receiving a healing that was much deeper than his, getting his voice back and his hearing. Jesus was pointing him to a deeper relationship, to a deeper healing that would only come in relationship with him. Jesus did the almost exact same thing. To a blind man in Mark 8, verse 22 through 26, it's right on the other page probably of your Bible, they asked him, they said, just touch him. This man was blind. Jesus led him, it says, it led, verse 23 says, Jesus led him out of the village. Imagine, Jesus holding this man's hand, leading him. Probably asking him questions about his life, including the pain and the suffering that he's gone through, he's experienced. And he doesn't just lay his hands on him, he spit. On his hands. He laid his hands on his eyes. He wanted Jesus, he wanted this man to feel. See, Jesus and the Samaritan were demonstrating that those in need require, they need more than money and immediate relief. They need relationships. They need people to come alongside them to love and care and support them. A well-known book, you may have heard of it or read, it's called When Helping Hurts. Colbert says that we tend to think of poverty as a lack of material things, but actually poverty is rooted in broken relationships. If this is true, they say, uh, then highly relational approaches are needed to alleviate poverty. Mobilizing teams of supportive people and their social networks are an essential component of any ministry seeking to overcome this, this poverty. See, UPC has a great reputation. I don't know if you know this of helping the poor. For um, for about 19 years, many of you were involved with this. We we helped every Saturday except I think about two in 19 years because of uh, hurricanes. We fed the homeless in Downey Park, uh, along with every Thanksgiving and Christmas. We we cooked dinners, and. Um, And this has left us with a really good reputation for helping the homeless in a lot of ways. We helped to start Samaritan Resource Center, homeless ministry in East Orlando. But a few years ago, we began to assess how this fits in with our call, our primary calling of making disciples. We started asking, well, how many relationships has this led to with the poor? What kind of impact are we actually having in their lives? Are we actually making disciples among them? Are we actually helping them? And we began learning about the statistics of the working poor living right around us. Many of them, families and children who do not have stable housing. I read some of those statistics earlier and we started asking the question, how can our primary calling of making disciples direct our calling to love and be merciful to hurting families around us? How can we increase our relationships with them? This is our calling. The result was this mercy initiative that we're calling family advocacy. Go ahead and pull out your insert. I didn't bring mine up. But there's an insert in your in your worship guide about this. It says our mercy initiative. If you can find it. I want you to read all of this right now, but um, got one? I can look at it real quick. I want you to look at the very last paragraph on here. Um, it says a family advocate. As someone who will commit to be in relationship with a working poor family and help them move towards healthy community, stable housing, financial stability, and spiritual growth. The family advocate will do this by coming alongside families to listen, to help create and complete goals, and to connect them, not to provide for them with the resources they need to move forward. About seven or eight UPC members are currently working with about three to four families in this way. Uh, but the local <clears throat> school has given us many more names of people who have told them we would like families in UPC to come alongside us in relationship. And we just simply do not have enough people to do that. If you are interested, if you have any interest in more information about using the gifts and resources God's given you to have a relationship with a working poor or hurting people around us, would you just fill this out? Put your name, email, and just drop it in one of those boxes as you as you as you leave today. Um, let me, uh, and we'll we'll get in touch with you. We'll explain more, but let me just say that many of you are already involved with way too much already, and, and this is mainly a call for number one, either those who are not serving and have a heart for hurting people, or two, those who have indicated an interest in discipleship and would like to direct that effort towards those. Who are working poor among us? You, know, you want to be involved in discipling the poor. The ultimate goal is relationships and discipling the poor out of poverty, and into the church, so they can experience a right relationship with God and others, the same way we all strive for. Okay, so that's relationships with hurting people. Let me just—I'll just end with the necessary motivation for mercy, and oh, we need it—the necessary motivation for mercy. You know, it's tempting in a story like this to make ourselves the good Samaritan. To see ourselves as the hero of this story, just as the lawyer wanted to do. But the reality is that that's, that's far from our own story of in life. If we want to receive eternal life and experience the fullness of life now and forever, as the man was originally asking, and if we want to have a heart a changed heart that really loves hurting people around us like this, then the first thing we have to do is is to admit we are not the hero of our story. And we have to come to admit our own poverty about ourselves. You know, Tim Keller wrote an excellent book on, on mercy called Generous Justice. And in it, he says that a heart not bent towards grace and mercy has not come to experience true compassion. When we ignore the poor, we show that we have not yet understood our own poverty. So if, if poverty is really rooted in broken relationships, we of all people who understand the Bible should understand that we have incredible, incredible spiritual poverty in our relationship with God. It's how the whole Bible begins. There's nobody that's a good person in the Bible. You know, it's so interesting to me at the end of Mr. Rogers, Fred Rogers' life, on his deathbed, he looks up at his wife and he asks this question. He said, I want to know if, am I really a, am I really a sheep? You know what he meant by that? He's quoting from, from Matthew 25 when Jesus says that in judgment, when you face God, He's going to separate the sheep and the goats depending on how you loved your poor neighbor. Now, I don't know what completely Mr. Rogers uh, was meaning by this question, but it sure seems to be that in a world that is so prone to think of good people, that, that good people get eternal life, as the, as the lawyer thought. That one of the most kind and loving men still seemed a little bit uncertain of his own goodness at the end of his life. Is that not a little bit surprising? He would ask a question, am I a sheep? It's because innately I think we all realize our spiritual poverty. We have fallen short, well maybe not of a good Samaritan that helps poor around us, but of the glory of God. We have all for, fallen intimately short and we experience poverty. And in judgment, you stand on your own goodness and you will fall short. We are the villain in this story. We're actually the villain. But we're, we're not just the villain. We're also the victim. Who of us hasn't felt the poverty of living in a fallen world and feeling beat up in life? Who hasn't experienced the poverty of relationships with our parents that weren't totally what they were meant to be and left us a little bit scarred? Or with, with friends? Or with classmates? Or bosses, currently? Or spouses? Or spouses? Poverty in those relationships. Who who of us hasn't felt like the one who is longing for someone to see us and to feel our, our pain, our struggle in life and to have compassion and love us with sincere affection and care to ask, what will happen to me if someone doesn't stop and help? See, Jesus told the story of a man, the story of a man, so that he and we might feel our poverty and lead us to the vision of a real hero. 1 John 2, 1 calls Jesus our advocate. It means that even when we are in complete poverty in our relationship with God, that he cared. That he saw us, he felt compassion for us, and he became So much so that he desired to become a man just like us in order to identify with all of our pain and suffering. That he would become the victim. The mercy of God is so personal and relational that God chose to be born into the world so that he could experience poverty. He experienced financial poverty in that Jesus had nowhere to lay his head. He had to borrow a donkey coming into Jerusalem. They gambled for his last piece of clothing. He experienced relational poverty. The the religious elites tested him and mocked him constantly. His parents misunderstood him and his disciples ran away. But the ultimate reason he came was so that on the cross, he could take on our sin and become the villain. As if he was the villain. Experience relational poverty. We were meant to have forever with God so that when he would rise again from the dead he would have that we would with him have eternal life in this relationship with God. That is how to get eternal life. To simply receive what Jesus has done for us. That's mercy. And when we really grasp the mercy of God towards us who were, when we were hurting it compels us outward to have a heart for a changed heart for hurting people with a desire for relationships with hurting people so that they might know the same mercy. In an age where Christians are considered bigots, where sarcasm and shock aren't valued and love is considered surprisingly disorienting, we have such a great opportunity. Oh, that we would seek to make the goodness of God so attractive through our mercy in East Orlando that many would come to see and feel and believe God's abundant mercy for them. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mercy towards us today. And the primary need this morning is not for us to leave compelled to go be merciful first. Because we only will love others if we know, if we have first been loved. And I pray, Father, if there are any there here today that do not know the love and mercy of God towards them, if they don't understand their spiritual poverty and their need for a Savior, I pray you would convict them of that this morning and bring them to a knowledge and understanding of their need of a Savior. I pray they would trust in your mercy. And I pray all of us would leave motivated with a changed heart to go be merciful and love our neighbor's like we first been loved. In Jesus' name, amen.